Hello, friends. Show is Stand to Reason. I am your host, Greg Kokel. And uh, I think starting next month, it'll be, no, actually, it's more like six or seven weeks. My 34th year, I'll be starting doing this. And um, wow, it's a long time. I uh, mentioned in the last show about uh, a series of questions or issues that were raised by in response to a question that went out to a lot of our people. I'm not sure how exactly that was done, but the question had to do, what are the tough issues that you face when engaging others about the the uh, about Christ? And what are the tough issues that you are having a hard time dealing with? And there were a lot of different things on there. In fact, when uh, probably as time goes on, I'll be addressing some of them because they fall in a number of different categories. And I talked the last show about one category of concerns or complaints or feelings of inadequacy, and that is when a person, a Christian, engages a non-believer and what they think, the Christian thinks, is a fair, even-handed, um, sound response to the challenge, um, gets just ignored. They don't accept it. It's not good enough for them. And my encouragement was, don't worry about that, <laughs> um, because there are a lot of people that are just not going to be inclined to be persuaded by anything that you have to say, for whatever reason. And I have characterized this in the past, different, um, in a certain sense, reasons that people reject Christianity, and one reason is reason. That is, they think that there is something inherently irrational about the view, and if that's the case, they can tell you what it is. If they say, well, that's just irrational. Well, I want to know what way is it irrational. Oh, that's dumb, or that's stupid. What is dumb or stupid about it? I want the details. Uh, Sometimes they do it for prejudicial reasons. They got blinders on. They're not interested in looking at anything else. They've already prejudged against Christianity and in favor of their own view. And this is kind of like, don't confuse me with the facts. Then you have other people who react because of emotional reasons. A very common um, resistance to the gospel is when people say, if I believed what you are telling me, then I would have to uh, acknowledge that my parents or some other loved one has died without Christ and it's going to be punished, as you've described, for their sins forever. And I can't accept that. Now, the, notice that the rationale for not accepting it is um, is that they emotionally can't handle the idea. Not that it's not true, but they just can't cope with that. So there are emotional rejections. And sometimes there's just bullheadedness, and this was characteristic, I think, of the response to a tweet that I read in the last hour, the last show, when I gave a a short kind of argument, and then it was utterly dismissed by the atheist, just simply dismissed, not answered, not challenged, not spoken to, not acknowledged even, (laughs) just dismissed. And to me, that's an example of the kind of person that just won't listen. And we're going to run into a lot of those people. I said, don't worry about it. It's not our job to get them to listen and persuade. It's our job to do our job. (laughs) 
and that is to speak clearly and persuasively and truthfully, accurately, and as graciously as possible. Let God worry about the rest. There was another type of concern that was voiced in this series of uh, responses, and this had to do—and this, by the way, is much—is very timely, all right? That is, we run into this a lot now, and this is why I spent quite a bit of time, um, a good part of a chapter, in fact— in Street Smarts to deal with it, and it has to do with the challenges um, represented by what is characterized by many as genocide being uh, being performed in the Old Testament, specifically the uh, conquering of the land and the destruction of the Canaanites and the commands of God to um, to, to do that. To, to destroy every man, woman, and child. When you read the language here, this is the way it reads. Utterly destroy, leave none alive, etc., etc. Now, I talk about, I talk about different uh, aspects of this, and I'm just going to tell you right now, first of all, this is not an easy one to deal with, and it's partly because we have to transport ourselves back, what, 3,000 years— to a, 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 a the radical and um, uh, vicious environment of uh, the ancient Near East, because it was a, a savage environment, um, especially when it came to warfare, and people were going to war all the time and displacing people from their lands all the time. This is just standard. This is world history. It isn't just the Jews. It's world history. But in this case, it appears that God told the Jews to do this, and that just seems unconscionable. Even if there were other acts of genocide going on at the time, in this case, the God of the Bible is responsible for this. Now, I want to I offer a, an angle here to offer some clarity, um, because the word genocide is a connotation word. It's very strong. It's kind of like hate and Islamophobia, and homophobia, and, you know, um, racist, and all these other words that are being used in the culture to have a powerful rhetorical effect. Now, of course, we don't want to sidestep the, the text itself and what is being described there. It's not my goal, but I do want to talk about this word genocide, because that is the word that's used to characterize what's described in the text. And this is not in the book, because I didn't think of this series of questions to set up my response until after the book was out, which does make the point that once you get into a street smarts—what's uh, the best word—mode, um, you get used to doing this, a lot of problems— that are not re- resolved in the book or even addressed in the book, are, you're going to be able to solve yourself using the Street Smarts tactical game plan, third step of the game plan, using questions to make a point. And this is what happened. I started thinking about this, and I realized something important, and it's going to be demonstrated here by the questions that I'm going to role play. So when somebody says that there's genocide in the Old Testament, I ask them, what is genocide? That's our first step our first move in the Colombo game plan. What do you mean by that? So what's genocide? You know what genocide is? It's when lots and lots and lots of people are killed. 
you know, one group of people just annihilates another group of people. You mean like when the Germans killed all the Jews during the Second World War? That kind of genocide? Yes, they killed six million Jews. That's a lot of people that are killed by Germans. Was that wrong? Of course that's wrong. They shouldn't have done that. Okay, I get that. I agree with you. That was genocide, and that was wrong what the Germans were doing to the Jews. But I have another question. What's that? What about what the Allied armies did to the Germans? What do you mean? Well, when the Allied armies invaded Normandy and then swept across France and then into Germany, they killed hundreds of thousands, even millions of Germans. Were they committing acts of genocide? That's the key question there. Because I think most people are going to realize, no, that's not genocide. <laughs> They're attacking the people who are doing the genocide, trying to stop them from doing the genocide. So when Allied soldiers killed millions of Germans, that wasn't genocide. That was justified because the Germans were killing millions of Jews, and that was unjustified. So then, and this is my question to kind of close this section out, this part of my conversation out, to, to clarify the significance, or I should say, the, the meaning of this word. So a genocide isn't when one group of people kill a whole bunch of other people. Because that happened in both cases, Germans killing Jews and Allied soldiers killing German soldiers, and civilians, too, with the strategic bombing. That's not genocide. The first is genocide, the second isn't. Genocide is when one group of people kill a whole bunch of other people for the wrong reason. The Allied soldiers had a morally adequate reason and the, to kill Germans— but the Germans did not have a morally adequate reason to kill Jews, all right? That's what we're after. And then my next step, and this I do go into in the book, is give give the reasons why God had a moral justification for bringing the destruction upon the Canaanites that were characteristic of the uh, of the conquering of the land by Joshua, and then the rest after him, all right? And this is one thing that I, I point out. Now, there's a couple of different factors here, and um, I want to emphasize that we are all talking about a culture we don't understand, we don't live in, and so therefore it's very easy for us to be guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, where we take the moral standards of one period of time and we impose them on a completely different period of time where those moral standards, frankly, are just not appropriate. They're not livable. And there's a lot of that going on now. I mentioned that that ancient world was a savage world. People were killing others all over the place and invading and wars going on and people, massive destruction, call it genocide if you like, self serving. In the case of the, um, uh, the the Hebrews, though, God explains why he is doing what he's doing. Actually, there's a couple of different reasons. And so here's a question that I have, a dialogue, 
that's in the uh, Street Smarts dialogues pertaining to this issue. And the question I ask is, if you were aware that there were places in the world right now where children were being sexually molested and then killed and, in fact, sacrificed in a religious ritual, what would you think about God if you found out that was the case? My suspicion is that they're going to say, I couldn't believe in a God that's going to allow that. In other words, you're saying if that were taking place, you'd want God to step in and do something about it. Of course, if he's a good God, if he's a powerful God. My response then is that's exactly what was going on in ancient Canaan. God was bringing judgment on a people who did that kind of thing on a regular basis, what I just described. And in fact, what I say in the book is that if Richard Dawkins was actually present when the massive um, examples of child sacrifice were going on, sometimes in the thousands, he would say, how can there be a God that would allow this kind of thing? Well, God didn't allow it. He finally stepped in. He was patient for a long time, four centuries, actually. And finally, he stepped in and said, enough. And this is when he brought the armies of the Israelis against the Canaanites to cleanse the land and to not only to kill, but to move people out and make a place for his nation so that they can flourish with a true religion and bring the Messiah that would be a savior for the entire world. Okay. Uh, now, some people object. They understand about the, the warfare and battle, but what about women? And what about children? Those are included there. Keep in mind that oftentimes when we read these accounts, we have what is clearly military hyperbole. In other words, they're talking about military destruction in a hyperbolic way. They're exaggerating for the sake of effect. And if you're not sure exactly what I'm talking about, pick up any sports page. You read a sports page, there it is. The um, what? The Dodgers destroyed the Angels. They ate them up. They annihilated them. Well, that's the language we use analogically or metaphorically to describe complete defeat. It's not meant to be taken literally. And it does appear that a lot of the language that is describing the responsibility of the Jews to uh, to make war against the Canaanites was that kind of language. It means utter defeat and drive them out of the land. Now, when they do that, are women going to die? Yes, of course. But if, remember, if this is an act of judgment for all the immorality that they were doing, and I just mentioned a small portion when I talk about child sex and I, and I talk about uh, sacrifice, child sacrifice, that's just a small part of the larger thing. That's the tip of the iceberg. Guess what? The women were involved in that, too. They were no less guilty than the men. And what about the children? Well, you know, this is hard. This is a hard thing to talk about. But what were they to do? What were the Jews to do? You can't you can't go and combat against the whole region. And then, you know, collect the kids in Humvees and drive them to the aid center. So it was a nasty affair. But 
what's interesting to me, I, I think there, are, but I think the whole enterprise was morally justified for a number of reasons. And uh, and the main reason, well, actually, there's more than one, but I've offered is judgment on these people who deserve the judgment. And keep in mind, when one country goes to war against another country, it isn't the men who are going against the war against the men. When we have modern warfare, we drop bombs. There are there are collateral. There's collateral damage. The Normandy invasion resulted in thirty thousand civilian deaths, but it was necessary to take place to accomplish the end of the liberation of Europe from the genocidal Germans. This is just the way it happens, and it'd be great if we could look back now and say, "Well, if that were me, we would have done it differently." But that wasn't the way it was done back then. But what interests me a little bit about this broader objection is that when people complain about the apparent genocide—by the way, it's not ethnic cleansing, because God wasn't against Canaanites. He was against sinners, wicked people, who happened to be Canaanites in that circumstance. But God said, you Jews— when you enter their land, you do not do like they are doing and have been doing, because if you do like they've done, I will do to you what I've done to them. Which is exactly what happened. And when the Jews caused their own children to pass through the fire, is the language that is used in my translation at least, God brought prophets to condemn them and eventually brought judgment on them by the Gentile nations, first Assyria, the northern kingdom of Israel, and then the Babylonians, the southern kingdom, 586, Judah. God was concerned about sin, not ethnicity. But yes, did a lot of people die? Yes. A lot of Gentiles died. A lot of Jews died. Whenever God judged sin, Lots of people died. Men, women, children. When God judged a nation, everyone in the nation suffered. When God blessed a nation, everyone in the nation got blessed. But what's odd about this objection, and this is the thought that I want to end with here, even though I've offered a number of things that that I've offered in Street Smarts, and I've got it from other people who did most of the research. Paul Copan has written a wonderful book helping out here with lots of detail. Is God a moral monster? Answer is no, if you read the text properly, and he goes into a lot of these things. Um, however, um, what's curious to me, even though we have a way of helping people to see why these actions during that time were justified— even though it isn't the way we would feel comfortable with things being done now, what, 3,000 years later, with our own moral sensibilities now. That was then. And God worked in that way to bring judgment on the people that deserved it. Here's what I think is unusual. Nobody ever mentions the flood. Nobody ever mentions the flood. In the flood, God killed every single person in the world. Man, woman, and child, save eight. 
that he protected on the flood, uh, on the uh, the ark. The flood came and took them all away, and a lot of animals too, most of them. That was God's judgment on the earth. Now, he explained his morally sufficient reason that their intent was evil all the time. And it really is hard sometimes to draw the line between the adults' actions and the children's actions, because the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? And so the behavior of the adults is going to influence the sensibilities of the children, morally speaking. And on my view, even those that were infants, it's another issue, but I think they go to be with the Lord. They were rescued and saved from their evil parents. But there is God, there's a massive judgment. And so here's the observation that I want to make, and it's a warning sign for Christians. Yes, God authorized and, in fact, commanded military action against evil people in the Old Testament, and sometimes he authorized and commanded it, so to speak, against his own people who were just as unrighteous or became just as unrighteous in their behavior as the wicked Canaanites. Okay? Um, Yes. But I don't think that God actually needs a moral justification. And think about the way sometimes people will argue against capital punishment. Now, I don't think this rationale goes through, but what I want you to see is an intuition that is manifest by this comment. So people will say capital punishment is wrong because people should not be playing God. People should not be playing God. Capital punishment, this is an example of people playing God. That's wrong. Now, I don't think the argument goes through because, at least in principle, and this would be my view, that God has given authority to governments to execute criminals under the right circumstances. All right? So it's delegated authority. Nevertheless, what is being evidenced there as a natural intuition? The intuition is that there's some prerogatives that God has that human beings don't have. God is the one who decides who lives or dies, not human beings. And that, I think, is a legitimate intuition. The intuition is that there are some um, liberties, if you will, that properly accrue to God that don't accrue to human beings. Maybe human beings shouldn't be playing God, but can God play God? That's my question. If God can, quote-unquote, play God, that means God, when he kills, when he takes life, when he destroys, even if he doesn't give a reason, is still within his rights to do so. Because what God makes is his. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God made it. What he makes is his. And if he decides to give it and then take it away. You know, the old saying, the Lord giveth and the Lord takes away. That's his prerogative. If he wants to give life, he can give life. If he wants to take life, he can take life. He needs no further moral justification. And the warning here for Christians is to beware of the, I guess, the impulse 
to sanitize God before unbelievers. We want to sanitize him. We want to tame him a little bit. We want to we want to persuade them that he's a pretty good guy and they should agree with the things that he did and here are all the reasons why we think they should agree with what he did. Now, I'm not against giving the reasons. Obviously, I just gave them. But when the dust settles, when all is said and done, God is still God. And if we don't agree with the reasons, or we don't understand the reasons, it doesn't change who's in charge. And as Amy and I were talking about this earlier, one of the things Amy said is, not only in agreement with this point, but that it's a good thing that our God is a good God. And we have lots of reasons to believe this. Now, some people will bring up the alleged genocide in the Old Testament as evidence that God isn't good, but notice what God was doing in that alleged genocide. Genocide isn't just killing a lot of people, it's killing a lot of people for the wrong reason. And what was the reason that God was killing these people? He was judging them for iniquity. It was an act of cleaning house. It was appropriate judgment brought upon an evil people. God had a reason, and it was a good reason. Therefore, it's not genocide. It is judgment. It is lots of dead people, but it's not an act of genocide. Certainly isn't ethnic cleansing, as I pointed out. And there you have it. And if there are people that are not satisfied with that, then I have nothing more to say. I'm going to let God be God. I'm not going to apologize for God. The irony is, is a lot of people that are making this kind of objection are people who are atheists. And I think a fair question at this point is, what is the standard of morality that you are using to—where did it come from, the standard that you're using to judge the God of the Old Testament by? You don't even believe in God, and therefore you have no grounds for morality, unless, as some atheists will do, you want to ground it in evolution— well, you're welcome to do that, but keep in mind that evolution, even if it could create false beliefs that we have about morality in the world, and that's what it amounts to, a false belief, we believe things are actually wrong when they're not actually wrong. It's a trick. I talk about this extensively in Street Smarts and cite the atheistic philosophers that make the same point. It may be that their view is true, that Darwinism Evolution has tricked us into believing false things about morality to help us to get our genes into the next generation. Okay. But the, all when we say that then God is doing evil things, all we're saying is that the, the Israelis, the Israelites' uh, evolution was different than ours, that God's actions differs from our evolution, and that's obviously— uh, inconsequential. Why, why can God be faulted? Because we evolved to certain things. Subjective views about morality that aren't even true. In the way we believe them, we believe them to be objective truths, but they're not. We're tricked. Okay, well then we're tricked. We believe false things about the world. There is no ab objective morality in the atheist world, so what really are you doing when you're judging God? You're just telling what you don't like or what your genes have taught you to say. 
but it's not a substantive objection to God's existence. And that's the best they can do. We can do better. We can ground morality, and we can also look at the, at the wrath of God against sin, which he exercised here with the Canaanites, he exercised in the beginning with the flood, and he will exercise in his judgment of the world at the end. You don't have to apologize for God being God, Christian. You don't have to sanitize God. Let God be God. Or in C.S. Lewis's words, Aslan is not a tame lion. Okay? Let's take a break and to your calls when I return on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Allen, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. All right, friends, uh, time to go in our last half hour here, back to the callers, and this is Richard in New York. Hey, where is uh, Rensselaer, New York? Is that near New York City, or is that upstate somewhere, Richard? It's more upstate, right across the river from the state capital. Oh, okay. All righty. So, glad to have you on board. What's up? Um, a couple weeks ago, you said that Operation Rescue was counterproductive, words to that effect, but Operation Rescue was indeed a, a very great thing that uh, people did for several reasons. Uh, number one, it saved lives. There were lots of uh, babies' lives saved by that. Uh-huh. Uh, as part of Operation Rescue, they had 
counselors at the front of the abortuary to right. counsel any customers who still might be coming. And the number two, and answer the question of the that girl that brought up the topic a couple weeks ago, is as to why isn't anybody doing anything to stop all this baby killing? Well, people did start doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, before then, there were um, some Roman Catholics who would protest and pray the rosary and whatnot there, and a few Protestants, and even even a Quaker. Mm-hmm. But, uh, basically, there wasn't much anything happening about it. It was being ignored by uh, most Protestant uh, churches. Another thing is, the face law had another C in it. That stood for churches, because in the months and uh, maybe a couple of years before that, the homosexuals were terrorizing two churches. And so for every everything that Paragraph A said about protecting abortion clinics, there was a Paragraph B saying it's protecting house services of worship for the same mm-hmm. penalties and everything. Are you talking about the federal regulations that made it illegal to block an abortion clinic? Yeah, the federal face law. Okay. See, I'm a little confused. Clinics and churches. Yeah, Richard, that's good. I didn't know that last detail, but I'm a little confused because I don't recall ever saying that Operation Rescue was counterproductive. In fact, there were lots of rescues going on here in Southern California. It was the talk of the town during the time. I knew a lot of people that were involved in that. And uh, there was, uh, I, I never, even when I was on the air at the time, I did not oppose Operation Rescue. And I think the fact that it saved lives, I, I don't dispute that. The counselors, I agree with that. that and th- that they did do something, I agree with that as well. Now, it turned out because of the federal regulations, they were not allowed to to block the doors anymore, and, uh, and and there was a kind of bubble of protection there. Now, according to you, and you, I'm not disputing it, but this also brought, provided protection to churches as well. Um, but um, I don't know why you'd need a federal regulation to protect churches from being vandalized by, by or 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 violated by uh, LGBT types or not. I, I wasn't aware of that whole element. But I do think that uh, terrorizing, yeah. But I do banging I, on the doors and saying we want your children and, and stuff like that. They're just terrorizing them. Right, and right. So when Congress got going, saying, "Oh, we've got to stop this, got to stop this," they said, "Oh, by the way, if you really, really want to stop that, then you've got to stop this too." And it did stop it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that was in a certain sense that was a a silver lining to uh to a law that that ended up protecting people who were taking the lives of, or cooperating with taking the lives of their unborn children. So I, I don't I don't have any dispute with you here, Richard, at all, as far as I can tell. Cause well, you what, also said uh, uh, when you're doing it, you're lamenting as part of what you said was counterproductive. You said it was these uh, what you just called bubble zones, which is not part of the face law. In other words, it's not illegal to get too close to the door when you're trying to do sidewalk counseling. Are you saying that there is no, there is no uh, kind of uh, distance requirement? Not in the face law. There wasn't no. Wait, not in what? What was that word? Faith law. Faith, federal freedom of access to clinic and church entrances. Okay. 
So what you're saying now, and I, I don't know the details of that particular law, but I, uh, you know, my understanding is that legislation now, and I, I don't think I'm mistaken about this at all, is you can only go so close. If you are campaigning against abortion in any way, shape, or form, with signs or with or with counseling on the sidewalk, or even just praying, you have to stay a certain distance away from the door, and that's the law. Oh, those are state laws. Some have been too extreme and were challenged in courts, and um, the courts ruled, no, that is too extreme, that restriction you had. Okay, so I'm just all I'm doing is acknowledging that those were, there were laws, whether state or federal, that 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 restricted that kind of access. But I've seen pro-lifers have continued to make their case, even with these uh, the bubble zone restrictions wherever they happen to exist. So, uh, and I'm glad for that. I again, I don't I don't know we're in disagreement on anything significant. Well, there's the, also the issue of private property. You can't trespass to. Uh, make your point. You yeah. can be on public sidewalks, but um, there's a case that Upper Hudson Planned Parenthood had their front door was on the sidewalk, on, mm-hmm. uh, and Citizens Concerned for Human Life got a federal stipulation that we could be, we had a counseling zone that was six feet away from their front door. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's not very far. <laughs> No, it's not. Yeah, okay. Well, good. Um, Richard, thanks for the call. I think we're largely in agreement here, um, and uh, and I appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, let's um, let's move to another issue right now. I want to take some uh, open mic calls here, and uh, we have <laughs> just had Amy print out two pages of, like, six, so we have people here that we haven't gotten to in a long time. But I want to hear from Natalie, because she has an important question about— uh, about our feelings and the issue of truth. So let's hear from Natalie. Um, uh, I think you got it queued up, right? Okay, go ahead. Hi, Greg. My name's Natalie. Um, so I have been just going through a season of uh, lots of existential questions. And I say that I have a pretty strong faith, but I am reading through the Old Testament in its entirety for the first time in my life. And it's definitely been challenging. Um, so I've just been having a lot of questions. And One that I wanted to get your input on has to do with the Holy Spirit and when we feel Him, whether that's just like His peace, His presence, or that we feel Him talking to us. Um, I've been learning a lot about Mormonism because I'm just trying to learn about other religions. And I've just have realized that, you know, like people like Joseph Smith have had like that burning in their bosom and they feel the Holy Spirit. And I think that that is true for a lot of different religions that they have this, you know, feeling that they have experience divine intervention and so how do we as christians know that like what we're feeling is truly from like the creator of the universe and from the christian god and it's not just something that we you know that it's not like the feelings that other people from other religions have experienced if that makes sense um thank you so much and take care oh this is a great question natalie and i'm really glad to field it here um, and I don't think that our argument regarding the affective, subjective feeling aspect of Christianity is that our feelings are not like the feelings other people have. I don't know what the feelings other people have are like, and no one knows that, really, except for the person who's feeling it. Uh, we, 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 there's no way we can feel their pain, so to speak, 
or feel their joy. We don't know what that is. But clearly, different people of different convictions regarding religion, which really is different convictions regarding the nature of reality. Let me just pause for a moment because I want to emphasize this. Religious claims are making claims about what reality is like, how reality is structured. Is God a part of reality? If he is a part of reality, what is he like and what does he want? And different religions have different answers to those questions. Buddhism doesn't even concern itself with God, for example, but it does have, um, it does express a point of view about other aspects of religious experience. So given the fact that there are feelings that people have of different sorts in a range of religious traditions, which religious traditions can't all be correct because they contradict each other at vital points, then feelings cannot be the means by which we determine what is true. So let me say that again, because it's really important. Different religions have different pictures or takes on what the world is actually like and what God is like if God is part of their religious view. Since these different religions all have um, have have people in them, <clears throat> have followers, excuse me, that have strong feelings in connection with their religion, yet these religions contradict each other at vital points, such that they can't all be true, then feelings can't be the measure of truth. This is a problem that people kind of get into here. They try to assess truth based on feelings. Now, um, as for the Mormons, this is actually part of their—well, philosophers call it epistemology, but I only say that word because I spent a lot of money to be able to use those languages, those those words. But since I'll explain to the rest of you what that means, that feelings are the way we know, or LDS believers know, that Mormonism is true. Now, to be more precise, what they do is they invite you to read the Book of Mormon, which is a special revelation, according to them, given to Mormons— about Jesus visiting the Americas after he was in Central America—I'm sorry, after he was in the Middle East. After he ascended, then he made a visit to the Americas, where these large populations of people uh, were, and he revealed himself, and the Book of Mormon is about that revelation and about those peoples. And what you are invited to do is to read that book and then pray and ask God— to give you a subjective confidence or a subjective affirmation that the Book of Mormon is really God's book. Uh, and this is what they might call their testimony, or they refer to it as a burning in the bosom, and this is a subjective thing. The Bible never suggests that you do that. No, no uh, writer of Scripture, and Jesus himself, he didn't say, take stock of your emotions, and as you, if you really have the faith, then you will feel the thing the Holy Spirit is making you feel that helps you to know by your feeling 
that I am the Messiah, and the Bible is true, and Christianity is true. It never makes that kind of appeal. Mormonism does, curiously. And it does not regarding the Bible, but it does regarding the Book of Mormon. Now, the Book of Mormon is not the theologically deep. It's not meant to be. It's not that kind of a book. It's a history book. The theology of Mormonism comes from other writings, like the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrine and Covenants, and some other things as well. And what the way this works is, if you get the feeling, the testimony, the burning in the bosom that is to affirm the truth of the Book of Mormonism, Book of Mormon, this is meant to be understood as an affirmation of Mormonism writ large and all the other books get included. So the big difference here is, though all religions or religious adherents, I should say, religious adherents of all religions have emotional experiences. As far as I can tell, it's only Mormonism that depends upon emotional experience for validation of their unique books. The Scripture, the Bible never asks for that, and ironically, one of the books that the Mormons, the LDS Church, believes is inspired is the Bible. How do we adjudicate between our feelings? The way we adjudicate between our feelings is not to look at our feelings, because our feelings are not the test of truth. Now, if what we're following is the truth, and the truth of that religious view that we're following communicates that there is going to be an affective relational element of the religion— and that would be true of Christianity, then it shouldn't be surprising when we accept Christianity because it's true and are regenerate and we start following Jesus that it's going to have affective, emotional, subjective elements to it. The peace that passes all understanding, Scripture talks about, or um, uh, the comfort that we experience in the Holy Spirit during difficult times or whatever the closeness that we feel with God in relationship. But never does the Bible offer that up as a test for its truth. Rather, Jesus says, you don't believe me? Believe the works that I do. The evidence is of the miracle. Believe Moses. Moses spoke of me. Believe the rest of the Scriptures that spoke of me. Believe John the Baptist who came before me and heralded me as a prophet. Notice how Jesus keeps pointing at objective means of verification, not subjective means. So if your question is, how do we as Christians know that what we're feeling is from the true God, as opposed to what people in other religions are feeling, you can't know that by looking at the feeling. You have some people who have really, really magnificent feelings about false things. And you have many Christians who are just not that affective at all. They're, they're not like majoring in feelings, but they're believing true things. And they are walking with God and living the truth, even though they're not bubbling over with emotional joy. Human beings are different, um, and different people respond differently. But the emotional feelings have no bearing on the truth of the thing being believed. That's the point I'm making. It is not—it has no epistemic value. There's that word again, or a form of it. 
It is not evidential. It's not probative. It's not the kind of thing that we ought to be looking for to justify our beliefs. We look to different things to justify our beliefs. And if our beliefs are true, and the beliefs that we have are about Christianity, and Christianity talks about a relationship with God, a friendship with God, and and joy that we experience as a result, well, then we're, we're going to experience emotions related to our true beliefs. But emotions are going to come and go. They are not the things that, that are the final test. All right? I hope that helps, Natalie. And uh, we just got about 10 minutes to go or so. Uh, let's, let's just go to the next one. Hmm, hold on just a minute. Yeah, let's go to Janet. She is the next one down. I could probably handle that <laughs> in six minutes. What's on your mind, Janet? Hi, Greg. I have a question on Arminianism and Calvinism. How important is it that I have a clear position on these two belief systems? I see Scripture supporting both, and I need to know how important is it that I have a uh, solid, clear position on this? Thank you. Bye. Uh, Thank you, Janet. And, um, hmm. Different people are going to answer this in different ways. I'm actually not even sure how Amy would answer it. Um, I think that the distinction between Arminianism and Calvinism probably falls under the category of meat (laughs) as opposed to milk. And spiritually speaking, when we are growing in the Lord, we start out with the simpler things. Then as time goes on, we get meatier and meatier. And we try to have a richer or deep and deeper understanding of uh, of how God is working, especially with regards to salvation. Now, generally speaking, the Arminian Calvinist distinction are tied to two teachers who saw the issue of salvation, especially in a different light. One was Arminius, and the other one was Calvin, Jacob. Arminius and John Calvin, all right? And they ask, they emphasize two different aspects, okay? The Council of Dort is the historical council that, that was a response of the Calvinists in five points to the Arminians, who in what's called the Remonstrance had five points of their own view. Okay, the five points of Calvinism are often called tul- the tulip, and I, I, I'm not going to run through the T-U-L-I-P because I, I can't always remember them, but they meant to, to c- contrast. So these are two opposing views about the issue of salvation and how salvation works. Simply put, if I can put it simply, is the Arminian view is that the final decision of whether a person is saved or not is with the person themselves. They are, there is a grace of God that's involved, but the grace isn't the deciding factor. It is the decision of the individual, sometimes characterized as a libertarian decision, that is the, it is the decisive element in that person's salvation. Whereas the 
Council of Dort and the Calvinist position characterized by the tulip, of those five particular points, it is God is the decisive factor there. And of course, that the answer to that question is it human beings making the choice that is the decisive factor of salvation for individuals, or God making his choice that is the decisive factor of salvation. This has ramifications for other details of theology, okay? So um, I actually think that the discussion is an important one. Um, I don't think it's inconsequential. I think it influences um, the way you understand God and the way you view God. Now, by the way, this is an admission on both sides. I, I, I'm on, as many will know, I'm on the Calvinist side of this with regards to, to salvation, sovereign grace, okay? And um, uh, I'm not an Arminian. William Lane Craig would be an example of an Arminian, or J.P. Moreland, for example, and many others like that, too. Calvary Chapel is on the Arminian side. Presbyterian churches, especially more theologically classical Presbyterian churches, would be more on the Calvinist side, also sometimes called the Reformed side, all right? And uh, I think these distinctions are important, and they also dictate other areas of theology and one's perspective about God. For some people who are Arminian, they, they couldn't even countenance the idea that God is the one who elects people, which, by the way, that's not to try to make points for my side, but that's what the text says, that God is the one who's electing. Um, you have to figure out then what, in what sense is he electing and what are the reasons why he's electing, who he's electing, and that's part of the discussion. But it's a, it's a big, big issue. Some people could not countenance that kind of God, and that's why there are many, they think this is awful. This is a grotesque picture of God that he would elect some for salvation and allow others just to continue on towards damnation. And uh, yet, for for a person on the other side, the idea that salvation is just simply up to us, uh, that God didn't secure anyone to be the bride of Christ and to go to heaven, that Jesus suffered all that he suffered without ensuring anyone's salvation, this in their mind is a bit bizarre. So a lot depends on how you approach this issue. I think it's an important one, and it's meat. And I'm, I, I don't have any animosity for people who come down on the other side of this than, than I do, but um, if you want to get into meatier stuff, you can pursue this more in more detail, and I think it's good for a Christian's um, maturity to do that. But I don't, I don't think, certainly, that one's salvation hinges on coming down on one side or the other. That's not my view, although some might hold that view on one side or the other. But I, I do think that more is at stake here than just, how did, I get, how did I get saved anyway? Clearly, we play a role in making a decision. The big question is, what is going on behind the scenes that leads to that decision? And what does that tell us about the person, the character of God, and what does that tell us about human beings? And what does that tell us about our role in evangelism? Um, and what does it tell us about about the 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 ultimate character of God? And uh, and so th- these are all things that are at issue with this question. Like I said, this is meat. <laughs> um, it is really solid food, and it's important 
uh, to build a foundation of the grace of God and salvation by grace alone through faith alone um, before venturing into these other areas, because though that foundation is a foundation that both sides share. Faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, uh, to the glory of God alone. I think these are solas, sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christe. All of these are the solas that relate to the work of the cross that both sides affirm, and we can all sink our roots deep into. Once we've done that, and the salvation issue is not in question, and the grace of God is not in question, then we can explore some of the deeper issues as we're able. And they are deeper issues, and they're not easy. But they can be really satisfying. There you go. Janet, hope that's helpful. Okay, friends, thank you for spending this hour with me. I'm Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye. <laughs> 